Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to look with you at a passage that honestly I'm embarrassed to admit to you that as um, having been a pastor now for some 20 years here at least and even longer um, at another uh, ministry, that um, to my recollection, I have never preached this text. And um, it is one of the, what one of my seminary professors called a jugular text. Um, it's one of those texts in God's Word that just sticks out, stands out as being maybe more important than others. We know that all of God's Word is important, um, but uh, certain passages jump out at us as seeming to have uh, a greater level of significance. And uh, this is one of those passages. And so, uh, as you know, we've been talking about the subject of evangelism. And uh, what does that look like uh, for us as a church um, to be focused on our mission, which is not just to come together and, and worship and, and, and pray and, and, and be taught the Word of God, but this is all really a means uh, to a greater end, and that's to go out of this place uh, throughout the week and uh, be a light for Christ, to be salt uh, in our community and to build relationships with folks uh, in our sphere of influence with the hope of getting to share the gospel with them at some point and uh, leading them to Christ. And so um, this was one of the texts that came to my mind that I thought, man, we need to consider what Paul said here to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verses 18 through 21. And so let me read this text to us. I'm sure are familiar to most of you. 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you for your word and how it encourages and challenges us every Sunday. And I pray that your spirit now would illuminate um, our minds to understand what uh, Paul meant by what he said here and um, enable us to see how it applies to our lives. And so would you grant me grace to make this passage understandable and applicable and Lord, that every heart and mind in this place would be uh, receptive and responsive uh, to your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, based on what we have been learning in the book of Romans, and just want to remind you, we are in a series in the book of Romans, and we'll get back there as soon as I kind of work this whole evangelism thing out of my system a little bit. But based on what we've been learning in the book of Romans, every person who has ever lived on this planet, no matter how primitive or advanced their culture, knows deep down inside that God exists, and also they know that something is not quite right between them and God. And I think that's why there's so many religions all over the world. 
world religions, if you've ever thought about it, are really just man's feeble attempts to get right with God and make amends for our perceived sins. Every religion offers different ways to appease God in hopes that our sins will somehow be absolved, whether that be saying prayers or making penance or going on pilgrimages or taking fasts or flagellations, beating yourself, uh, making sacrifices or giving offerings. Well, on the one hand, the innate sense that we all have in our hearts and minds that we have violated God's standards and thereby have offended Him and are separated from Him and deserve to be punished by Him, that is right, that is true. The Bible makes that abundantly clear that our sin has caused a major rift between us and God. There's a huge chasm that separates us and needs to somehow be bridged. And when Satan got kicked out of heaven... He declared war on God and convinced mankind to join him in his rebellion. And when Adam and Eve gave into Satan's temptation to sin, the entire human race was instantly plunged into sin, separated from God, and ever since that first sin, we have not just been estranged from God, but we have been hostile enemies of God. And the objects of God's wrath who deserve to be banished to hell for all eternity because of our rebellion against him. And furthermore, if left to ourselves, we would be perfectly fine remaining at odds with God. In fact, even if we wanted to get right with God, we couldn't. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So on the one hand, to understand that we have a problem when it comes to our relationship with God, that's right and that's true. On the other hand, however, it's wrong to think that we can be reconciled to God or we can fix that relationship with God through our own efforts and achievements. God has already done everything that's needed for us to be reconciled to him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we know, God sent his son on the, to die on the cross in the place of all those who repent and receive him as their Lord and Savior. And as a result of God's death, if you will, or Christ's death, the death of his son, God's holy displeasure against sinful man was appeased. The enmity between God and man was removed and mankind's broken relationship with God was restored. And now he extends an invitation of peace to all those who are willing to surrender their lives to Christ. The question is, how will people know what Christ has done for them so that they can be reconciled to God and rescued from death and hell unless someone tells them. Again, back in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then here's the question that Paul poses. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7. And then Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 6, in that section on the armor of God, an interesting comment about what's on our feet as a Christian soldier. He says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What a great analogy there for us as Christians that our feet should be ready to run out into the world and proclaim the gospel of peace. That's what God has called every Christian to be and to do, to be his messengers or his ambassadors who faithfully proclaim the good news of peace so that people can be reconciled to God. And that's clearly the main, pas- or the main point of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The words reconciled or reconciling or reconciliation are used five times in these four verses. And what I I want us to see this morning as we look at these verses together is, is how Paul explained four aspects of the ministry of reconciliation, that everyone who has been reconciled to God through Christ is to participate. In other words, God expects every Christian to play a vital role in helping as many other people as possible be reconciled to him. And understanding these four things in this passage will encourage and equip us to be more faithful to and more effective at our privileged duty as ambassadors for Christ. What are these four aspects? Well, first of all, we'll see the ministry of reconciliation announced in verse 18, and then we'll see the ministry of reconciliation amplified in verses 19 and 21, and then we'll see the ministry of reconciliation assigned, verses 18 and 19, and finally the ministry of reconciliation applied. Let's look first of all at the ministry of reconciliation announced in verse 18. Paul writes, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. All these things that Paul mentions there that are from God refers back to the previous verses in which Paul described the total radical transformation that takes place in a person's life as a result of conversion. They have a new motive Notice verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he who died for all, so that they may, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so there's a new motive, and it's the, it's, it's Christ's love for me. I'm just overwhelmed by how much I'm loved by the Lord, and that motivates me, that drives me to want to live for Him rather than myself. Notice the new, not only the new motive, the new mindset, verse 16, therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. In other words, we no longer see people the way we used to see them. They aren't just the person, um, you know, totaling up our bill at Walmart. Um, and giving us a receipt. They're, they're an eternal soul who's going to spend 
uh, eternity somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. And so we begin to see people not just for who they look like on the outside, but for what they really are on the inside. It's, a, it's an eternal soul. And we're also a new creation. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And again, the idea here is of the transformation that takes place when we come to Christ, when we put our faith in Him. And so, as is true of everything, God is the source, He is the author, He is the initiator of all these things. And so we can't take any credit for these things. He gets all the glory, all the honor, all the praise for our salvation and any changes that we experience in our lives. And so all these things are from God. Notice he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God is the one who reconciles. He is the reconciler. We aren't. He's the one who is ultimately responsible for restoring friendly relations with his sworn enemies. And he accomplished that reconciliation through Christ, and specifically through Christ's death. Look at Romans chapter 5 quickly with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. This should be familiar to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, on the other hand, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now notice verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were what? reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Another place in Paul's letters where he talks about this concept of reconciliation is in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 19 through 22, Colossians 1 verse 19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all, all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Again, classic texts I'm sure you're familiar with that describe this concept of us as enemies being reconciled to God, and now we're his friends. Now, when there is a conflict between two people, the person to blame should take the first step to make things right. Isn't that how we usually think about it? When we get sideways with someone, right? Whoever was the one that created the, the rift should be the one who initiates right, the, the, the resolution, but what makes the gospel so amazing is that this normal order is turned on its head. 
Because in the gospel, we see an offended God take initiative and reach out to us to restore the relationship that we broke. And he's done this all at great cost to himself. And so this ministry of reconciliation is announced to us in its basic form here in this opening verse of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. But Paul couldn't just stop there. He wanted to expand on it some more, give us some more insight. And so let's see how the ministry of reconciliation is amplified in verses 19 and 21. Notice he goes on. He says, namely, this ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And so God was in Christ, and we could understand that to me, that Jesus was God in human flesh. God was in Christ. Or we can also see it as God reconciled us to himself in or through the person and work of Jesus. I think both are accurate understandings of that phrase. Maybe it's a combination of both. But we need to be careful as we interpret this, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We need to be careful not to assume that what Paul was saying here um, was that everyone in the world will be saved. It's what's uh, called universalism. It's the heretical belief that, that everyone will be saved. In other words, because Jesus died on the cross for the world, that, that uh, everyone is going to end up in heaven, no one's going to go to hell. Well, surely that can't be what Paul meant because that would completely contradict what is taught elsewhere in God's word, that those who don't repent of their sin, they don't receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, will escape um, God's judgment for their sin. Or I should say only those who repent of their sin and receive Christ. Only those people will escape God's judgment for their sin. The Bible clearly teaches that the sins of believers will, or of unbelievers will be counted against them. They will be punished for their sins in hell. So what is Paul saying when he says that God, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? I think that word world refers to the entire sphere of mankind. In other words, that, that Christ died for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's, it's similar to when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right. So what is the idea here? That, that, that in other words, Christ came to reconcile not just Jews, because again, many of the people he was writing to had this mindset, well, Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews. It was Israel's Messiah, not the world's Messiah. And so Paul would often remind them that, no, he didn't just die for Israel or for uh, his, 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 his people, his chosen people. No, he died for Gentiles as well. And so Christ came to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to himself and to each other. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is uh, re- uh, helping the church in Ephesus realize that 
there's something new going on in God's mind and God's plan when it comes to the church. And the church was made up of not just Jews, but also Gentiles. And so he says this in Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. In other words, there was a rift between the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is a law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Of course, you remember when Christ was on the cross and uh, proclaimed it is finished. And uh, we know that at that moment... In the temple, the veil that separated um, the Holy of Holies, right, from everyone else was torn from top to bottom. The, the, the point was that through Christ's death on the cross, that now we had access to God. Not just Jews, but everyone had access to God. And so God removed the barrier sin had caused between us and him. Notice back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19... He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now think about this. God could have done one of two things with our sins. He could have counted them or he could have canceled them. And that's what he chose to do. He doesn't keep track of our sins or hold our sins against us. Warren Wiersbe said it well. He said, reconciliation is based on imputation. Now, again, if you've been with us in our study of Romans, you are familiar with that term imputation, the doctrine of imputation, which simply refers to something transferred or credited or counted to another person's account. It's a banking term. And uh, if you jump down to verse 21... Notice what he said. How, how does this work? How does he not count our trespasses against them? Well, he, he does that because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 21 is probably one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament. In just 15 words in the Greek, Paul profoundly describe the basis or the grounds or the foundation of our reconciliation. In other words, he explained how God can justly reconcile to himself guilty sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because he made him, God made him, Christ, 
who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Again, we need to be careful here to how we interpret this because the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus never sinned nor did he ever become a sinner even when, we, when he was on, a cro- on the cross. Hebrews 4.15 talks about um, how Jesus never sinned. He was without sin. He was a, a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses, who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. First uh, Peter chapter 2 Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And so what does it mean then that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf? Well, on the cross, our sins were placed on Christ. God treated Christ, like he was a sinner, not that he was a sinner or or that that he was a sinner, but he he treated him like he was, like he had committed all of our sin. And so he became the object of God's wrath. God poured out all of his wrath against our sins on Jesus. And Jesus suffered in our place the the penalty, uh, to pay the penalty for our sins. Of course, uh, you're probably very familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, probably the greatest description in, this, in the, New Te- or the Old Testament about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In other words, that Christ died as our substitute in our place. Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, crush Christ, putting him to grief. He says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And so it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, here's the opposite Second part of the verse, so that we might become the righteous of God in him. In other words, that we might become righteous. And that righteousness that Paul is talking about here is a righteousness that God, number one, requires of us to go to heaven, but also the righteousness he provides through justification. Justification is when he declares us righteous. He declares us uh, he, 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 he treats us like we have never sinned. And so when Christ died on the cross, our sinful unrighteousness was imputed or credited or counted against him. 
And when we place our faith in Christ's substitutionary death alone for our salvation, his perfect righteousness is imputed and credited or counted to our account. In other words, God treated Christ as if he lived our sinful life and God treats us or so that God could treat us like we lived his sinless life. That is reconciliation amplified, explained in more detail. But how does all that relate to us other than the fact that we've been reconciled by that glorious gospel? But let's look at the third aspect of this ministry of reconciliation, and that is the ministry of reconciliation assigned. And notice I skipped over two phrases. I'm sure you noticed that in verse 18 and verse 19. First in verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This refers to the office or the duty that God has assigned to us to help people know how they can be reconciled to him. And he says it again in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God has entrusted to us the incredible honor and privilege of going out and sharing with everyone the word of reconciliation. In other words, God's terms of peace. God could have given this sacred charge to anyone or anything. To, to me, it, it makes most sense that he would have entrusted this sacred charge to angels. And if there was anyone who couldn't mess it up, right, it'd be the holy angels from heaven. And he would just kind of fire them down from time to time to people and just kind of an angel would show up and share the gospel. That would get people's attention. Maybe that would be more successful, more productive, but he didn't give this sacred charge to angels. He chose to give it to us. And who better to share with others about how they can be reconciled to God than those who've been reconciled ourselves? That's the one thing we have on angels. They've never experienced reconciliation. They didn't have to. And so it's important that we know this word of reconciliation. If we are the ones that have been entrusted or it's been assigned, we've been assigned the task to get this word out, if you will, then we need to know the message of reconciliation. We need to know the gospel. Do you know the gospel well enough to share it with someone else? And if I were to come out there and say, hey, just, just, just briefly, just share, share with me the gospel. What is the gospel message? Could you articulate the gospel? Maybe the more important question is, have you experienced the gospel firsthand in your life? It could be the reason why you have no passion to share the gospel with other people is because you've never experienced it yourself. That, that you know a lot of truth you got a head full of, packed full of biblical knowledge, but you've never been truly saved. 
Your life has never been transformed. You're not a new creature in Christ. And so, all this talk of evangelism and sharing the gospel, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and there's really no passion or no, no desire to get involved on the, in the mission of the church. But notice now in verse 20 how Paul takes this to the next level in applying this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20 is the ministry of reconciliation applied. What does this look like? The fact that, 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 that we've been reconciled to the Lord and um, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us this word of reconciliation. We are the ones he's assigned the task. We've been assigned the task of getting the word out, this, this, this wonderful good news that, that, that sinners can be reconciled to God. They can have their sins forgiven. What does that look like practically for us to be um, have the word of reconciliation or to be given the ministry of reconciliation. Notice what he says in verse 20. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love this analogy that Paul uses. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are official representatives of Christ who serve as his spokesman to tell other people what he wants them to know. We are evangelistic envoys, if you will. Um, You're familiar with uh, an ambassador, right? A foreign ambassador. Uh, Someone who represents his own country or government or, or king in a foreign land. And the reputation of their country or their king rests in their hands. Their nation, their ruler are judged by their words and their actions. And so when we think about the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ, we are citizens of heaven, right? We are aliens and strangers here on this earth. We are living in a foreign land, if you will. And Jesus is judged, our ruler Jesus, our king Jesus, is judged by our words and our actions. So what is the impression that people in your sphere of influence are getting or have of Jesus based on what they're seeing in you, what they're hearing come out of your mouth, how they're they're watching your life? What impression are you giving to them of Jesus? I think it's important for us to to note here that, that... Paul wasn't just referring to himself here or his co-laborers or pastors and evangelists that, oh yeah, we get that. They're they're the ones in the ministry. No, he was referring to every Christian. Every Christian has been given the ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to every Christian Christian, the word of reconciliation. Every Christian is an ambassador for Christ. The question is, are you a good ambassador or a bad ambassador? You know, I think if we learn how to apply this 
ambassador mindset, it has the potential to radically change how we view our lives and how we live our lives. Because what Paul's saying is that no matter your occupation in life, maybe, maybe you're a salesman, maybe you're a homemaker, maybe you're a mechanic or a school teacher or a police officer or a fireman or a contractor or a plumber or a secretary or accountant or a student. You may be that. You know, that's somebody says, hey, what do you do for a living? Well, this is what I do. No, your highest calling in life as a believer is being a heavenly ambassador. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, we ask, hey, what do you do? What do, I, what do you do? And I, 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 sometimes I just kind of resist telling them I'm going to be a, you know, that, I, that I'm a pastor. Why? Because instantly the walls come up and things change as soon as I tell them I'm a pastor. And so sometimes I try to think of a creative way to say something different, like, what do you do for a living? Well, I have the privilege of telling sinners how they can be reconciled to God. You ever thought about saying that to somebody? Especially guys. Guys, we have that conversation. Hey, what do you do for a living? Say, well, I'm an ambassador. I'm a foreign ambassador. And I have the privilege of helping sinners be reconciled to God. Are you interested in hearing? I mean, you can get right to the gospel right away on that, with that answer, right? We have to have this mindset that, that wherever you are, whether you're at, in your house, when you're you know, at work, when you're at school, when you're at Walmart, when you're at the gym, when you're at wherever, at the park, at the playground, right, with your little Mother's Day out thing and you're having fun, you know, play date with your other moms. Listen, you are not a housewife. You are not a mom, right? You are an ambassador for Christ. That's who you are. And ambassadors are always on call. Every conversation, every interaction with everyone, everywhere matters. And so I think this is helpful for us to remember that evangelism is not a program. It's not a project that we schedule. Hey, we're going to go out and evangelize. No, it's a, evangelism is a regular, ongoing process of people who have been reconciled to God telling others how they can be reconciled to God. And I love this, what it says, as though God were making an appeal through us. Whenever we share the gospel with another person, God is personally inviting them to be reconciled to him through us. And he's pleading through us. One commentator said this, this this is the glory of the gospel, that in it, in the gospel, God is actually on bended knee and with tear-dimmed eye begging men and women to be reconciled to himself. I mentioned last week that the main reason we as Christians don't share our faith is fear. We're embarrassed, we're intimidated to talk about Jesus with, with other people, but when we realize and remember that we are ambassadors for the King of Kings, what's there to be scared of? What's, what's there to be embarrassed by? If people reject us, they're not rejecting us, they're actually rejecting Christ. 
We don't have time to look at this, but Jeremiah chapter 1, just write that down. You could look at that example of the prophet Jeremiah, and a prophet was a mouthpiece of God, and that's exactly what God told Jeremiah. Jeremiah's like, ah, I'm young, and I, I don't know what to say. And he says, don't worry about it. I have put my words in your mouth. What a prayer to pray, right? Lord, would you put your words in my mouth? As you head off to work, as you head off to school, as you head off to the store, as you head off to the gym, Lord, would you put your words in my mouth? He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I ask you, I urge you, I entreat you, I plead with you continually or habitually. And so this is the point of this passage. As those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, we stand in the gap between God and man. Now, obviously, Christ is the mediator, right? But we are the messengers. He accomplished the peace. We get to announce the peace. We are the means that God has chosen to get the word out. And when we proclaim the gospel, we act as peacemakers, which provides us the blessing of knowing that we are God's sons and daughters. Matthew 5, 9, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So reconciliation is something that has been completed in the past, but it is a continuous process that we have the joy and privilege of being a part of. Every believer plays a part in this ministry of reconciliation. One plants, one waters, God causes the growth. And I think this is helpful for us. This has been encouraging for me to think about this, these last few weeks that rarely, rarely does anyone come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel. That's extremely rare. They have to hear it multiple times. And rarely do we get to share the entire gospel the first time we meet someone or even as we're developing a relationship in those first few weeks and months. You might not ever get to sharing the gospel with them, though at least the full gospel. And so should we fa- feel like failures as ambassadors of Christ? No. Being an ambassador for Christ is all about intentionally building relationships and creatively weaving gospel truths into our everyday conversations with those where we live, where we work, where we shop, and where we go to school. I was reading this little book by David Platt called Gospel Threads. And um, just the introduction was very encouraging, very um, convicting, very helpful. And uh, David Platt was just... uh, describing an experience when he was overseas and he was in a a Muslim country where it was illegal to meet together as Christians and he was there meeting in a secret church with with, uh, some other uh, believers that had come from America that had uh, set up a business there in that country. And uh, here he was surrounded by all these Muslims that were meeting in this secret church and some were sharing how they had gotten saved and some were sharing how they were in the process of being saved and, and, and they were just uh, all in different places. And, uh, and so David asked these guys, well, how did this happen? And uh, 
he, this is what he says. They explained to me that their goal each day is to weave gospel threads, that is the core truth of the gospel, into the fabric of any, every interaction they have with Muslims. In every conversation, in every business dealing, in every meeting, they look for opportunities to speak about who God is and what he has done for them in Christ. Of course, not every conversation involves a full hour-long gospel presentation. Instead, they aim to saturate their interactions with various threads of the gospel. The prayer of these missionaries is that in time, God would open the eyes of Muslim men and women around them to behold the tapestry of the gospel that has been woven before them. In other words, we know the gospel, at least one of the plans that we have memorized and that we use here at Lakeside is God, man, Jesus, you. There is a God who deserves to be glorified, right? Uh, uh, Man, we we have not glorified him. Uh, We deserve to be punished. Jesus is all about that he came to die on the cross so we could be saved from God's wrath. And then finally, the response, you uh, you have to repent and believe, right? So, so we, in our minds, think, well, I want to be able to share those four points with these people as I'm out there, my coworkers, classmates, right? Uh, people at the gym, I want to share these four points. Well, guess what? How about instead of thinking you failed because you didn't get a chance to, you know, take them through the, your gospel outline, think about how you can introduce in a conversation the theme that there's a God who's holy and deserves to be honored and glorified. And just weave that into your conversation. And then the next day, maybe look for an opportunity to talk a little bit about sin and how sinful this world is. And, you know, and there's easy ways to make these connections, right? And then maybe another day, talk about Jesus. Bring up Jesus and talk about what he did and who he is. And, and then talk about the importance of, of someday weave into the conversation about repentance and faith and, and what does it truly mean to be a Christian? In light of what we were talking about, the fear factor, he says the reason we don't share our faith, and this may be the primary reason, is fear. There's fear of the repercussions of identifying with Jesus. Persecution often silences the spread of the gospel. We often fear rejection. Maybe even more than that, we fear awkwardness. (laughs) The fear of awkwardness seems to be ingrained in our culture and our relationships. We avoid awkward conversations like the plague. Talk about Jesus at the workplace or bring him up with your neighbor out in the yard and things get awkward pretty quickly, but they don't have to. This is what he says. The threads of the gospel are not intended to be an awkward intrusion into our conversations. Instead, they can be woven into the fabric of everything we do and say. It's the ambassador mindset. It's the ambassador lifestyle. And as we show the good news of reconciliation. As we share the good news of reconciliation, lives will be changed and God will get the glory. There's only one other time that this term ambassador is used in the New Testament and it's by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so somebody asked Paul, Paul, how can I pray for you? First thing that copped out of his mouth was, hey, pray for boldness. Pray that I would be bold 
because I'm an ambassador for Christ and I need to be bold. Second to that, he said this in Colossians chapter four, verse two, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And so not only pray for me that I would be bold, but that I would be clear. That I could boldly and clearly share the gospel. I could boldly, clearly weave the threads of the gospel into everyday conversations at home and at school and at work, at the store, at the gym. And I love this, that God will open up to us a door for the word. We should be praying that. We should get in the habit of praying that wherever we're headed, wherever we are, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to speak a word for you. Put your words in my mouth. Help me to be bold. Help me to be clear. Use me as an ambassador for Christ. Beloved, there is no higher calling, no greater privilege, no more urgent task than the ministry of reconciliation that God has entrusted to every one of us as believers. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this honorable role, this esteemed position that you have placed each of us in as believers. We're more than just believers. You never wanted us just to be content that we are reconciled with you and to spend the rest of our days studying your word and enjoying fellowship with other reconciled people. But Lord, you wanted to use those of us who've experienced reconciliation to go out and help other people be reconciled to you and tell them how they can be reconciled to you through what Christ has done for them on the cross. Lord, would you give us this mindset, this view of our lives that would just... uh, be so transforming that we would just live, we would think differently about who we are and then therefore we would act differently, we would talk differently, we would interact differently with those around us. That this is ultimately why we are here. We're not here to make a living, to, to, to pay the bills, to, to go on vacation, to raise a family. All these things are, are things that, that, that you bless us with. But ultimately, we are here to be your ambassadors. And so would we be faithful to that task? By your grace and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.